Hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode of the Playsheet Podcast. Joe, eight become four. It's like the worst Spice Scale song ever. But here we are at the sharp end of a stick championship weekend coming up. Yeah, and I suppose this week, for the most part, it went the way of the seedings. And we spoke about the Bengals and the Bills being very much a kind of equal playing field game. So even though the Bengals won that one, it all feels like it went the way that maybe a lot of people would have expected it to have gone. Uh, Yes, although, as I said, we expected the Bengals-Bills game to perhaps be a little bit closer than it was. I mean, it was a 27-10 game. And that 17-point differential feels like it was almost flattering the Bills. I mean, the Bengals destroyed them. So if anything, that's the only perhaps surprise for us. Or perhaps that the Jags made such a game of it against Kansas City. Yeah, so let's jump into that Bills game a little bit then. I mean, the scene was set for the Bills, wasn't it? You had that wintry, blizzardy day up there in New York and you just thought, perfect perfect conditions for the Bills. They played in this weather before, they're used to it, and the Bengals came and feared nothing. Yeah, and um, I'm not sure how many listeners subscribe to Bleacher Report, but they had a bit of a riff on Moneyball with the famous how can you not be romantic about baseball. They had how can you not be romantic about football, showing that scene you've just described there. Amazing wintry conditions, absolute scenes. And it's those kind of games where you think that, as you say, snow should favour the Bills, a home game in the snow. It's what they're made for, or what they say they're made for. Didn't pan out that way, though, Charles. No, and I suppose, as to be expected, after a loss, we heard all about Alan playing through the pain and discomfort of his elbow injury, which we knew about from pretty much the start of the season. But there were claims that it really started aggravating him from, I think, about week seven onwards. That aside, though, and we'll get into the Allen injury and what impact that may have had on this game. You think about a snow game and you think about really the run game. When conditions are particularly poor, you think that the safety is in your running game. And is a lack of a true power back something that was glaringly obvious for the Bills? Is that what a large part of what showed them up this game? I don't think it's even a lack of a power back. It's a lack of a running game full stop. It's almost a cliche now to talk about it in this way because I'm pretty sure that in the first season of the podcast, we were talking about how the Bills didn't have a balanced offense. I think we talk about it probably once every three or four weeks because it's just a constant, constant thing that comes up every time they lose. Well, yeah, they lost because their game wasn't balanced. You look at at time on the field and... Take away Josh Allen, he's not directly the reason they lost elbow or not elbow. You can't put it on his shoulders. What you can put on his shoulders, though, is how the offense couldn't keep the Bills' defense off the field. It seemed that every time they went out and had a possession, it was free and out. Bang, bang, bang. Pass, pass, pass. Clock hasn't moved at all. Hardly any time has passed. We're already on an ad break because the Bengals' offense are going back out there again. The Bills' defense spent too much time on the field. I think the split of possession had the Bengals having the football for seven minutes more than the Bills did, which in the scheme of a playoff game is a pretty big split. Just to break this down even more, talking about possession, talking about keeping defences off the field. Both the Bengals and the Bills had 14 passing first downs. 
The Bengals, with their balanced offense, with Joe Mixon firing on most cylinders, had 13 rushing first downs, almost a 50-50 split there. The Bills only had four rushing first downs. Basically, if they were making first down three quarters of the time, it had to come from passing over three quarters of the time. And when you're set up like that, you're just not giving your defense a break. Absolutely. And looking at the runners here, you had Joe Mixon. And I appreciate that game script will have played into this because right from the off, the lead kind of ran away from the Bills. But Joe Mixon had 20 carries for 105 yards in this game. Meanwhile, the Bills lead rusher was Josh Allen for eight carries, 26 yards. I mean, on a snow day, that's just not acceptable. And I think that lack of a run game, and I appreciate that they were behind for the entirety of the match, but it was just, it was what we said about other teams so far in this playoffs before, you know, Tampa Bay, when we talked about them, it became so predictable. We knew everything was going through Allen and it just allowed the Bengals to zone in on him and shut him down, basically. Exactly. And I think it's play calling. You mentioned about personnel and whether they need a power back. We know that Devin Singletree is probably at the top of the depth chart in terms of their backs, but it's hard to tell when there's so few carries. We know that Singletary is only five foot seven. We joked about him getting lost in the snow a few weeks ago. But, you know, James Cook isn't small. They had Zach Moss, who was a big part of that running offense, if you can call it a big part, a season or two ago. And he was a relatively big guy. So they've had those bigger personnel in there. They're just not using them. And I'm not sure where this comes from. I'm not sure if Josh Allen just is making audibles at the line of scrimmage and just moving away from a pass play. He's never taking the option when it's there. I'm not sure if the offensive coordinator just doesn't want to play a run game. If He's just avoiding it. But it's making the Bills become a predictable team. It's making them easier to scheme against. And it's why they'll always get found out in these wildcard and divisional games and never get to the big show until they address us. So here's a question then, Joe, because it seems like it's not a massive issue to potentially fix. But for the third season in a row now, the Bills feel like they're they're really in that conversation to be Super Bowl contenders and they've fallen short. Does this start affecting some of their veterans that they want to keep on the team who might think, do you know what? Maybe it's time to cut my losses here. and Maybe I've got a better opportunity at a ring elsewhere. Could this potentially hurt keeping the team together? It's a great question. And I think that Twitter addressed this in a very indirect way after the game. Just There's a lot of people joking that this is already the end of a Bills dynasty, the dynasty that never was. Because we've talked about Windows, and there's a lot of misconceptions about what Windows are. Windows aren't when you sign a whole load of vet players and, oh, we're in a window because we've signed D-Hop and we've got JJ Watt. That's not what the window is. The window is when you have high-class rookies on cheap contracts. The Bills are going to be going into salary cap, not hell, but salary cap limbo a little bit in the offseason. They will lose veterans. Whether those veterans want to stay or don't stay, it's almost not a choice because they're going to have to make some hard decisions. So in a way, Charles, yes. And it's not because veterans want to stay or don't stay. I still think that if, if I'm an aging linebacker, a cornerback coming to the end of my career, a wide receiver who's got something to offer in a slot, I'm still going to want to play at the Bills. But the question is, can the Bills afford me now? Because they're going to have some challenges. And then let's flip very briefly to the Bengals because 
this is something that's bugged me really kind of the lead up to this game and what's followed there's been a lot of chat primarily coming from Mixon and then Burrow after the game they've had this real chip on their shoulder this last week about the fact that pre-sales for tickets at a neutral venue had been going down and the team took that as a bit of a slap in the face a bit like they were being disrespected but pre-sales to games that haven't been decided yet they happen every season don't they yeah you're absolutely right there Charles and I think that this has echoes really of the Michael Jordan Le Bradford Smith thing that, that we saw through the Last Dance series on Netflix Michael Jordan made up in his head that Le Bradford Smith some rookie on a different team had slighted him and he used that to motivate himself in a game where he had very little motivation and there was this whole folklore that came from this player saying something to Jordan when he never said anything at all but Jordan had to make up something in his head to get over and I think that in a way when you've got a team like the Bills who have all the hoopla surrounding them about DeMar Hamlin and that's not to be disrespectful to it at all but there's but there's been a lot of goodwill towards the Bills and for a lot of neutral fans the Bills have been quite positive in their perceptions over the last few weeks it's perhaps been a challenge for the Bengals to kind of have that locker room hate against them so they've probably had to come up with something like your reference in there the ticket sales to kind of give them that little bit of uh that little bit of aggro in training yeah that mentality of us against the world and everybody's got it in for us just to create that fire absolutely because i said the the hamlin thing was still a backstory and they tried to utilize him in a very cynical way we'll call it cynical when they showed him to the crowd at halftime that he was in the building they gave him a wave unfortunately for the bills by that point they were already in quite a hole but when you have this in the background it can become hard to to really be mean in a way Okay, so let's move on then, Joe, to a team that wasn't afraid to show their meanness. The Eagles dispatched the Giants with absolute ease. I mean, they looked like the team that they did early on in the season before Hertz went down. What are your thoughts about that team and how that game played out? Yeah, it was pretty brutal. And to take a step back and not address it from an Eagles perspective, but from a Giants perspective to start with, this, for me, had echoes of the aftermath of the Minnesota Miracle. If anyone remembers what was it, back in 2018, Vikings had that you know, all-time worldy play with Stefan Diggs last minute scoring a touchdown walk-off against the Saints. It was huge. It was emotional. It was massive. It meant everything to them. They got through to the championship game the week after against the Eagles and got slaughtered by actually a similar score to what the Eagles have just beat the Giants by. I think that was a 38-7 game, weirdly enough. I think the score was exactly the same. The emotional outlay that the Vikings had in the Minnesota Miracle just meant that mentally they weren't in the right place the week after. And although, you know, the Eagles would go on to win Super Bowl, the Eagles were a better side. They were never a 38-7 side better than them. And I think that for the Giants to win their first playoff game in a long time last week, what felt to them the, the maturation of Daniel Jones, him you know, finally perhaps becoming the player they wanted, everything clicking, everything going right. They were never going to be able to recreate that performance from what we'd seen during the season. It was good to see them play well, but they weren't a week-in, week-out team of that calibre. And so a drop-off-in performance was to be expected, and they just couldn't get their game back to that level. So from a Giants, in a way, it was probably almost predictable that they weren't going to be to that standard. Now, the Eagles, though, it was all clicking for them. They were taking advantage they look good, Charles. They look good. And so 
I'm going to put this out to the floor, yourself and I, opportunity here. Are, are any of us taking back our prediction that the winner of the 49ers Cowboys will go on to the Super Bowl game? Anyone want to move their chips over to the Eagles at this point? Oh, that's a great, great, great question. Because I didn't think, like I said, I didn't think that San Fran would beat the Cowboys. I thought the Cowboys were going to come through on that one, but Dak decided to have another down game. Now, I'm perhaps being unfair to Dak a little bit there because the defense obviously didn't get to Brock Purdy. They allowed him to outscore them. He got 19 points. All right, it's not a mammoth score, but he still didn't throw any interceptions. He, he, he still looked pretty good out there. Can the Eagles upset Brock Purdy? Because that's just the key to beating the San Fran team because there's very few other chinks in the armor. All right, their cornerbacks are maybe still the weaker part of their defense. Once you get past that front seven, there's perhaps gaps you can find. But this is a very solid San Fran team. Look, I still think Philly are going out in the championship round. You can perhaps even call this irrational bias that I still think that there's weaknesses in that team that they're not as good as the score lines are showing and that they can be schemed against but I wouldn't be surprised equally if they go on and win it all because they've certainly had some great results there are you going to move your chips Charles where do you see the Eagles going well it's funny because I I saw that Cowboys 49ers game slightly differently it was a low scoring game and you can watch those games and get to the end of them and think, oh, what did I just watch? But for me, I really enjoyed that game. I actually thought it was a great display of defense. And I think I I appreciate that maybe the Cowboys didn't get to, to Purdy as much as they hoped they would. But I still thought they put pressure on him and they caused the 49ers issues. But I think Purdy just really controlled it a lot better. He game managed in the way, ironically enough, that we've praised Garoppolo of doing before. He didn't panic. He didn't give things away. He made those chunk plays. He game managed it and he made his way through. The Eagles defense looks even better than the Dallas defense. And you're absolutely right. If they can go one step further and they can rattle Purdy, that's going to be a major issue. Equally, Hertz looked phenomenal against the Giants, but the Giants' defense was almost invisible that game. And as we've seen, the 49ers absolutely put the spooks up Dak. And if they can contain Hertz and they can stop his scrambling and they can stop him making big plays, then, you know, the 49ers can maybe turn the tables. I think this is going to be... Well, I was going to say I think it's going to be super close. It might not be. It just depends which of the two sides show up. Am I going to slide my chips? Do you know what? I think the Eagles might do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think the Eagles might get the better of the 49ers this weekend. Shall I tell you why I'm not? And the points you made there are absolutely valid points. And you can be spot on. The run game of the Eagles is so important. Now, we know that A.J. Brown has had an impact, that Devonta Smith has developed this season as well. You know, that's a great one-two punch at wide receiver there. Not taking that away, but everything that the Eagles do goes through the run game and the effective run game that they have there. You need your front seven to stop the run game, and perhaps even more, you need linebackers who can plug the gaps, look at the channels, and know where their assignments are. I think the linebacker core at San Fran with Fred Warner, Dre Greenlaw, those type of players is probably the best linebacker core in the league. So if one team can do it, it's the 49ers. And I think this 49ers defense is the best equipped 
to stop Jalen Hurts, to stop Miles Sanders, to stop Boston Scott, to stop Kenneth Gainwell, to stop that run game that they have. And so I'm keeping my chips in San Fran because of Fred Warner and Dre Greenlaw. Excellent. Well, do you know what? It's quite interesting that you mentioned the run game for the Eagles because, of course, the 49ers, traditionally, they've been known as a phenomenal run team. And with the acquisition of McCaffrey this season, a lot of people thought that that would elevate them to the next level. But we've got McCaffrey and Eli Mitchell on injuries at the moment. Now, how severe they are and how much they'll impact them is another question. Do you think that if they're not at 100%, that could deeply hurt the 49ers game this weekend? Or do you think that they've been showing enough in recent weeks to prove that they're more than just a run team? And even with those niggling injuries, uh, they'll be able to sort of rise above it all. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think I've got to change the record on Brock Purdy a little bit. This is one thing I will change. I keep on saying about how he's this rookie, how I expect teams to kind of get to him. At the end of the day now, he's won two playoff games and he's come through those challenges basically unscathed. He didn't throw any interceptions. He was only sacked twice against this Cowboys team. You know, you look at some of the defensive players that Cowboy team has, they only got to him twice because he got the ball out, he managed the ball, he knew what he was doing. He's not playing like a rookie, right? So I think I've got to change my tune on Brock Purdy a little bit. Are they more than a run team? Yes. But is it an issue about his injuries? I think that there's a lot of gamesmanship in how we're talking about things here. I know that teams have got to report, you know, who's limited, who's DNP and all that kind of stuff. But the injury that Christian McCaffrey has, which he's allegedly day-to-day with, is a contusion. You and I both know that a contusion's a bruise. He got him a leg, you know, something like that. I don't think he's really that hurt, and I think he'll be 100% on Sunday. So I think it's it's a bit smoke and mirrors there. I think that Elijah Mitchell came in. He's on the up, trending upwards in terms of his health. And then you've got wildcard players in there as well, like Debo Samuel, who can line up in the backfield. So is it an issue? No. If it was an issue, I'm pretty sure that... Shanahan would scheme certain players to get around it. I don't know if you disagree with that in any way. No, I think that's fair, to be honest. Looking at the injury reports, they do look like light injuries. And it feels like, as you mentioned, there's kind of Vegas rules that they have to report everything that is there. But some injuries are greater than others. And I think in this case, look, they'll be fit to play. Um, So I'm hoping for an absolute doozy of a matchup in that conference battle. But continuing the theme of injuries and looking more towards quarterbacks, we've got two quarterbacks that we can talk about now briefly. One kind of trending down in terms of an injury sense and the other one trending up. So we saw Mahomes take what looked like a high ankle roll this week and they taped him up good and proper so that he could see out the game. They just didn't want to leave that one to chance. There's questions around how capable he's going to be in the following week, especially I know it's a very different type of injury, but we saw how he struggled with turf toe in previous seasons in the playoff and how that impacted his game. And then on the flip side of that, you've got Jimmy Garoppolo, who it doesn't look like there's any chance of him coming back to training this week, but there's talk about him returning sometime in the near future and potentially being fit for Super Bowl. I mean, presumably if he is, he's nothing more than a backup at this stage. 
That's correct. We're in full swing Purdy mania right now. Can you imagine if Purdy goes out there and does anything but not have a shocker and then gets replaced for Super Bowl? It's just not going to happen. Now, they say that you shouldn't lose your place through injury. Sorry, Jimmy G has lost his place through injury. Brock Purdy's come in. He's done a Bledsoe to Jimmy G. Jimmy G's played his last snap as a starter. We've touched on this previously as well. Brock Purdy is the quarterback of the future for San Fran. Unless he absolutely blows up, absolutely falls in a hole and has a Nathan Peterman slash Trevor Lawrence for interception half, something like that. It's going to take something like that to stop him now. And we'll talk about this more in the offseason, but the decisions that have to be made are whether they're keeping Trey Lance. Jimmy G, like you say, is back up at best for Super Bowl. Brock Purdy is the starter. Mahomes, on the other hand, I mean... That's huge, Charles. That's huge. We saw, like you say, how Mahomes looked in Super Bowl 55 when he was basically playing on one leg against the Bucks. And if there's one quarterback who can play on one leg and still look elite, it's Mahomes. But you're playing a good Bengal side this week. And I think if both quarterbacks were fit, this was a shootout. And you've got to say that this injury really just really puts Bengals in a better position than what they were. Obviously, of course. Yeah, and surely from a game plan perspective, Andy Reid's got to be looking at either plenty of run plays or plays that get the ball out of Mahomes' hands quick because they're not going to want to take that gamble of Mahomes hanging on to that ball and potentially taking another brutal hit with his weight on the wrong leg or even ending up in a situation where he's forced to scramble. Yeah, you can take that ankle up all you want, but as everyone knows, when you're playing injured, the risk of aggravating that injury is so much higher than if you were playing healthy. So he'll do everything he can to be out there. But like you say, Reed will have to really make sure that how he's using his line is almost at the most basic way so that Mahomes has a line in front of him. You don't want offensive linemen pulling off, doing uh, you know fancy stuff and, and potentially leaving a gap open for a linebacker or safety to come in and smash Mahomes. You've got to play more conservatively with the plays you pick with your run game as well. And this, and this is run game as well. Because like I said, you don't want linemen pulling out and uh, you know trying to do stuff that's going to move them too far away from the pocket. It's going to require a lot of thinking from Reed, but it's going to limit that playbook. Fantastic. Well, look, matchup-wise on the cards, it looks like we should have two interesting games here. So I'm thoroughly looking forward to it. There have been a few kind of movements from coaching side of things, people taking interviews, teams looking into switching things up, but we'll likely save that for another episode. We've got the gap before Super Bowl. We've also got the episode after Super Bowl. So we'll wrap that all up when we can do it all at once. And until then, Joe, enjoy the conference finals. Enjoy conference finals, Charles. Look forward to it and look forward to speaking to you next week.